0: Oh, I remember when I was that young. is <laughs> that eh, great? Love hearing that. Uh, it is um, it's no better time to start, you know, with that, than when you're young. And, um, uh, yeah. I um, I don't know how Becky does it with getting speakers, but Nancy Guthrie does not normally speak to one or two or three or four hundred people she speaks to john piper conferences and johnny erickson tata conferences where there's several thousand and um, i don't know if there must be some in becky has got on that but uh... It, it, awesome time ladies um, for you with that I, I, uh... i you, find, you learn things about staff that you didn't realize. You know, some some staff have a second job, which I didn't know. Um, I, uh, um, anyway, I just alert you to that. Anyway. Okay, yeah, thanks. Where's Jeff? Okay. All right. Well, here's the first. I'm going to begin today where I finished last Sunday when I asked you two questions. And the first question is what's your foundation? What are you building your life on? What gives you security and confidence as you look into the future? And what's your true north? What is it that determines what's most important to you? What guides you in the decisions? You make and what you do and don't do. Just make sure we understand true north, because that might be unfamiliar to you. Uh, At its best, okay, it's God's call in each one of our lives. It's what's true to who we are, it's what's right, and it's what's best for us, and it's what's best for every person whose life we touch, if we're living by our true north. It's really maximizing God's potential. And when you know your true north, you know what your life is all about. You know what you're doing and why you're doing it, and you have, a, you have this very clear sense of direction. So what's your foundation and what's your true north? It's our... Two life-defining questions, and they have everything to do with today's scripture, because what we discover in the 13th and 14th chapter of Genesis is two men with profoundly different answers to those questions. Two men from the same family, one an uncle, the other a nephew. Two men from the same city, uh, the city of Ur, Ur of the Chaldeans, two men from in a sense, coming from the same religious background. They, they both came out of a very pagan culture where, that was devoted to uh, the worship of imagined lunar gods, like the sun and the moon, the planets, and all that. But, so they have so much in familiar uh, that's you know similar, but that's where it stops, because the answer that they gave to those two questions are as different as, those, as any two you know, answer could possibly be. Anybody know the names of these two guys by any chance? Uh, huh? Yeah, come on, come on, come on. Abram and Lot. Good, good. Just want to make sure you're with me on this. Last Sunday, I I, I mentioned a book written by a guy by the name of Wayne Cordero. Uh, uh, title of the book up there, uh, Divine Mentor. The Divine Mentor. He gave it this title because it the Bible, the greatest mentor we can have is in the Bible, Jesus Christ, and the Bible also includes a a, a whole bunch of other mentors for us that we can follow. But Cordero also points out that there are more than a few individuals in the Bible who are mentors for us on what not to do, what not to do, mentors in the opposite way. We look at their life and we say to ourselves, man, there is just absolutely no way I'm going to do what they did, right? So that's what we got in today's scripture. We have two mentors, Abraham, who teaches us what to do, and Lot, who teaches us what not to do. And both men had a a foundation on which they based their lives, built their lives, and their own choice of what to guide them in every decision they made and what they did and didn't do. Abraham's choice was a true north it was God's calling on his life it it was what's right and best for him and really for anybody whose life he touches because he lives by a a true north but I I would say Lot did not have a true north he had a he had a false north okay because it had nothing to do with God and it really wasn't the right way to live and as we're going to see this morning it was not going to end well for Lot. Not at all. Not at all. So we're we're going to begin with Lot, and then we'll look at at Abraham. And again, uh, Lot was Abraham's nephew. He came along with Abraham when Abraham left Haran, because his his own dad had died. Abraham was pretty much his family, and so he came along with him. And it's in, in chapters 13 and 14 of Genesis that that we uh, we we first learned that that really, uh, Lot's along for the ride. He's not into God's call, but he's thinking that Abraham is a good guy to hitch on to at least until he doesn't need him anymore. And it doesn't take long before he gets to that point. We saw it last Sunday when Abraham gave Lot first choice of what land to take, when they realized they couldn't be in the same spot anymore because too many animals and too many people and all that couldn't support them. And, and and so they these two men stood, stood together, looked out over the land around them, and, I mean, Lot saw what he wanted right away. And he, he, he wanted it because it was the best possible land on which to grow uh, wealthy and you're talking river bottom land, uh, rich soil with an abundance of water. You know, as good as it gets for grazing livestock and growing food. But it it had one problem, one one major problem. At the most, is barely inside Canaan, and really all it would take is one step for Lot, and he would be outside of Canaan. And that that's where we last saw Lot in chapter thirteen, and it's here that things get bad where they begin to go south. So look at this, verse 12, and and, in verse um, 13, it says, Abram lived in the land of Canaan, while Lot lived among the cities of the plain, and pitched his tents near Sodom. Now, the men of Sodom were wicked, and were sinning greatly against the Lord. Um, You think Lot doesn't know this? You better believe he does. He... He knows exactly what Sodom is and he knows what he's doing. He had any number of places to put his tent, but he chooses to put down stakes as close to Sodom as he can possibly get. A, a city that was absolutely notorious for its wickedness back then. In fact, it was so evil that it wasn't long before God destroyed it completely. And described for us in the 19th chapter of Genesis, where we're also given the first example of the wickedness in this city, and that was the sin of a homosexual lifestyle. Okay? But the thing you and I have got to know is that homosexuality was not the only sin of Sodom that God views so seriously uh, back then and, and today. God speaks to the prophet Ezekiel to point out, his, out sin that had every bit as much to do with the destruction of that city. And here, here's what God said, speaking through, uh, through the nation of Judah, through the, through the prophet Ezekiel, in chapter 16, God said this. I don't know if you realize this or not, but God says, now this was the sin of your sister Sodom. Judah's a city, or uh, Judah's a nation, Sodom is a city. And, and God says, she and her daughters were arrogant, Daughters are other cities around, other towns around. They were arrogant, overfed. You know what that means, right? They ate more food than they needed to eat. Unconcerned. They did not help the poor and the needy. They were haughty and did did detestable things before me. Therefore, I did away with them, as you have seen. You see, everybody, as far as God is concerned... Sexual sin, whatever form it takes. The sin of arrogance. The sin of greed and selfishness. The sin of indifference to the poor and needy. They're all equally, uh, equally wicked and responsible for God's judgment on Sodom. I don't know if you knew that. But it's important to know. But no doubt Sodom... We might say the Las Vegas of the ancient world, okay? And they might have advertised, you know, Sodom the same way Las Vegas advertises. Like, you know, what happens in Sodom stays in Sodom. That that kind of deal. Some biblical scholars even say that there isn't a city in our world today that equals the wickedness of Sodom. That's got to be pretty bad, okay? we got a pretty wicked world. So why does Lot do this? You know, why does he settle in close to a city like this? Right now, you might be thinking to yourself, man, Lot's completely lost it. I mean, he's at a, he's at a whole different lower level than any one of us here today. Well, you know, we might do a check on this, all right? See, the answer is found in, in Lot's foundation and his false north, okay? Lot's foundation is his wealth. His false north, okay, and and with that wealth, the security it can give him and the pleasure it can give him, his true north is more wealth, like more and more. Like, you can never quite have enough. That's what guides him in every decision he makes and what he didn't do. So that's why he went where he went. That's why he wanted to go to Sodom. You might remember last week I mentioned that Abraham had three options when he dealt with that lack of space and the conflict between his herdsmen and Lot's herdsmen, and three options that he, he had to choose from He had to make a priority out of it. and and Abraham made his choice remember remember what it was he put God first family second and and his wealth third great amount of wisdom in this and what was right and what was honoring to God and really it, it could have been a blessing to Lot if Lot would have let it be a blessing it was a true north kind, a, a true north kind of a deal Lot did the opposite He put his wealth first, and and God and family a distant second. As far as Abraham, he stayed with Abraham as long as he could get rich off Abraham. But then when he saw, you know, another option where he could get even richer, it it was like he said, you know, Abraham's a good guy. I mean, Uncle Abraham, I like him. Nothing wrong with him, but, you know, business is business. And as far as God, not only did Lot settle near the city of Sodom, you just step into chapter 14 and you find out that he, he then he wasn't along until he moved into the city. So much for sharing in God's call. It's like wealth was his foundation, and pursuing more wealth was his false north. That's what his life was was all about, and if this meant leaving Canaan and God's call and in moving into Sodom, so be it. Hey, that's how he saw it. Read the 19th chapter of Genesis and you'll see that it cost him big time. Big time. It cost... It cost him his own spiritual life. It cost the spiritual life of his, of his wife and his two daughters. And, I mean, read that 19th chapter, and you know what? The irony of it, the irony of it. The thing Lot dreaded most happened. He ended his life living in a cave with little or nothing left of his wealth. Penniless, really. A tragic ending to a tragic story of a tragic man. A man who made wealth his foundation and more wealth his false north. You see, Lot's only a mentor by by what he teaches us not to do. Now let's see what we learn from Abraham. Um, brings us into the 14th chapter, where we see Abraham taking his second step of success in, in following his true north. He takes his second step, his second step. And of all things, it's the same deal as with Lot. It, it all has to do with, his, with money, with finances, his wealth. And, and it's a step we discover that comes out of a battle that he was, he was pulled into. A battle between two sets of kings. Uh, kings that ruled what we might think of as city-states. Remember that from your history class? He had, A city-state is like a a small city back then, or it could be large, and the land surrounding it, and you had somebody who was like the ruler of that area. It was a city-state. That's that's what we're talking about. Now, I thought of reading the first 12 verses, but my goodness, there are so many names in there. And I just thought, you know, I think there's a better way to do this. So, you know, the Super Bowl is just around the corner. And, uh, you know, and first ever this year, two brothers facing each other as they coach the teams in, in, in the Super Bowl. That's going to be fun. I, I'm going to enjoy that. So we're thinking about the soap, Super Bowl and, and, and football. So I thought of that, but you know what? Uh, basketball works even better for what we're doing today because with basketball, you have five players from each team on the court at the same time. And, and so here's why. If you read those 12 verses, you discover you got got five, five kings against four kings. All right? So very, you know, the, the other side had to recruit another king, all right? So you, 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 you read those first 12 verses and you see the dominance of the second four kings. It's, it, it kind of looks like an NBA game, okay, Be, between one of the bottom teams taking on one of the top teams. So we might say like, you know, the Charlotte Bobcats taking on the Miami Heat, all right? That, that kind of a deal going on, and, 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 and yeah, Bera, I think the Two teams are up there, right? Were they? All right, good. So Berra's the point guard, and Lormore is the point guard for the other team. They're like, you know, they're the forward generals leading their two teams. And it's a it's it's a championship game, okay? And it's being played in the Valley of Siddham. And Keta Lormore and, and his team, his team of players, totally demolished Berra and his team. And the prize for winning. The, you know, is, 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 to be the winning team is everything they want to take from Sodom and Gomorrah. Clothing, food, uh, furniture, I mean, you name it. And even, even the people in the city to serve them as slaves, which they took, including Lot, all described for us in the first 12 verses. It's, it's a great game. Okay, you want, you want to read it. Okay. Now, what happens is this gets reported to Abraham. And you read further into chapter 14, and you see Abraham putting his own team together, army. He attacks the four kings, sends them running, and recovers everything taken from Sodom, including his nep- nephew Lot. It's like, it's like Abraham says, is saying to himself, whatever it takes, I'm going to keep on blessing that kid. And I'm not going to give up on him. Which brings us to verse 17 and 2 Kings and the reason for the title of today's sermon, 2 Kings, and Abraham, Abraham's remarkable success in pursuing his true north. And what we're going to see is that it all has to do with money, finances. Okay, but I want, I want to make sure we remember what Abraham's foundation is in his true north, okay? His foundation is God's promise. God's promise of salvation through Jesus Christ and eternal life in heaven, and his true north is God's call. God's call to be a blessing to the world. Okay, that's what guides him. Now, verse seventeen. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna read these verses, looking at these two kings. Okay, separately and how Lot responded to each one. You're just, I just, I. Just, I I just love this stuff. Okay, all right. Now, look at this. Barak king of Sodom, verse, verse 17. This, this is what we read. I mean, it's just fascinating. It said, after Abram returned from de- defeating Ketalormar and the kings allied with him, the king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Sheba. That is the king's valley, all right? And then we read this, verse 21. Same king. The king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the people and keep the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I've raised my hand to the Lord God most high, creator of heaven and earth, and I have taken an oath that I I will accept nothing belonging to you, not even a thread or the thong of a sandal, so that you will never be able to say, I made Abram rich. All The difference in the world between Abraham and Lot. Lot wanted everything he could get from Sodom, no matter what. Abraham wanted none of it. In his own words, to emphasize his point, he said, Not even a thread, not even the smallest thread, not even the thong of a sandal do I want from you, Barah. What we have here to learn from, everybody, is complete integrity with money. Money, not the smallest compromise, He was devoted to God. He was committed to doing what was right. He was confident in God's promise, the foundation for his life. He was focused on God's call, his true north. He he knew his foundation. He knew his true north. And all of this together inspired and strengthened him to take this step in his journey of faith with complete integrity. Okay? Okay. I'd say it's the first thing we learn from our mentor today, from Abraham, integrity with our finances, where we say to ourselves, not in any way am I gonna compromise doing what's right to get what even one dollar, not even one dollar, will I compromise. And then there's the second king. Okay. Look at this, verse 18. To verse 20, and I'm like, wow, okay. Here we read this. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high, and he blessed Abram, saying, blessed be Abram by God most high, creator of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who de- delivered your enemies into your hand. And then, then, then Abram gave him a tenth. In my opinion, these are three of the most fascinating verses in Scripture. They're definitely significant. This encounter for Abraham with Melchizedek was a defining time in his life, all because of whom Melchizedek, I almost said was, but is. okay And what Abraham did in response... <laughs> There are several things that connect Melchizedek to Jesus Christ that make him one of the most significant characters in the Bible and and make this meeting between Abraham and Melchizedek incredibly defining in Abraham's life. First of all, the meaning of his name. Melchizedek literally means king of righteousness. Everything about this man pointed to the righteousness of God. So the contrast between him and the king of Sodom is as great a contrast as you ever find. These, these two men were like polar opposites, these two kings. All right? Second, not only was he the king of Salem, he was the priest of Salem. By the way, does anybody know what the ancient city of Salem is? What city it is? It is Jerusalem. Whoa, Jerusalem, yeah. Here's what's so cool about this. Melchizedek is given this one brief mention in Genesis. The next time he's mentioned in Scripture is a thousand years later in Psalm 110, which is a prophetic psalm pointing to Jesus Christ. And it's in this psalm that David quotes from God, God making this declaration about his son in verse 4, where God said, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. You know what makes it even cooler? It's what's written in Scripture another thousand years later, after Psalms. In the New Testament book of of Hebrews, which actually devotes three chapters to showing the connection between between Jesus Christ and Melchizedek, this book not only points back to what God said about his his son in Psalm 110, it points back to the meeting between Abraham and Melchizedek. So let me me read this for you. Uh, Book of Hebrews chapter 11. And... uh, you find this um, and verses 1, 2, and 3. Yeah, you all got it. You, you find it faster than me. Okay, and now, now look at this. Um, yeah, where am I? Chapter 7. Um, <laughs> this Melchizedek, you already read it, haven't you? This Melchizedek was king of Salem and priest of God Most High. He met Abraham returning from the defeat of the kings and blessed him. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. First his name means king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem means king of peace. King of righteousness, king of peace. Man, I wonder who that really is pointing to. And And then you read this, without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of days, like the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. And you go like, whoa, what do we have here? Wow! Probably stirs up a few questions. At the very least, or maybe I should say, at the very most, it makes us realize that this was one very, very significant man Abraham was meeting, and for Abraham, a defining time in his life. Everything about Melchizedek pointed to Jesus Christ. So for Abraham we could say that this was as close to a God moment he could ever have. It's how he responded to this moment that he becomes a mentor for us. And so here's the statement, verse 20 in chapter 14 of Genesis, it says, "...then Abram gave him a tenth of everything." Not a small deal. This is not something for us to miss or dismiss. It was a major step of trust and obedience for Abraham and his journey of faith. And Again, we're seeing what we saw last Sunday. His his hands are are wide open to God again, but this time with his money. He's, He's not taking control. In trust and obedience, he's giving God a tenth of everything. I mean, he's truly a mentor for us. To follow. You see see what I... You know what I think? You know what I think, everybody? I think we all need our own come-to-Jesus meeting. Okay? Where we're so impacted by the truth of who God is... that we're inspired and we're strengthened to open our hands to God... where we don't take control, you know, of what God has so graciously provided for us... But instead, in trust and obedience, we give God a tenth of every single dollar that God's made possible for us to earn. And it all goes back to your foundation, what it is that you're building your life on, and it all goes to your true north, what it is that you see as God's call on your life, what's really right and best for you. What gives you security and confidence? As you look into the future, and what guides you in your decisions for your life? Trusting God, not trusting your wealth. And and you know, where you understand that life is far more than wealth, how much wealth you got. What life is all about is, is what you do with your wealth to be a blessing to other people. See, I, 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 can, I can stand before you this morning. I don't feel at all like I'm, I'm like here telling you what to do. I feel, you know what it feels like to me? It's like if you were my absolute best friend and I wanted the very best for you and with, with all the passion in the world, I would try to convince you, man, this is just a total win for you to do. A total win. There is no better way to live than trusting God and completely surrendering your finances to him. You'll not only be a huge blessing to others, you'll be incredibly blessed by God. You have everything to gain and nothing to lose. You know, friends, one of the reasons I thank God for the privilege of being a pastor uh, is what it's... Confirmed for me about the truth of God's word. And tithing is one of those examples. These 37 years as a pastor have convinced me that tithing is a step of trust and obedience that we've all got to take if we're going to move forward in our spiritual journey, if we're going to keep on becoming more and more like Jesus Christ. I mean, it is, it is, it's true. I can also say, (laughs) I've heard many, many, many stories from men and women these 37 years who have th- enthusiastically said that they've never regretted taking that step of trust and obedience. This week I asked a few guys I know who lead their families in tithing to send me an email with some of their thoughts and here's what they emphasized in their emails back to me. First of all, you do it because you love God. It's all about loving God, loving people. And, they, and then they said this. It, it, they, they said, it, it has taught me God's faithfulness to provide. God is faithful. God will provide. One guy had a funnest story. He told about how one time he wanted to get a Chevy Tahoe in the worst way. But he realized that the, the payment for him to get a new Chevy Tahoe would be what he what, he, what he's tithing to God. And so he, he had to make this decision. Which one is it going to be? And he decided, I'm going to keep on tithing. I'm not going to compromise that. And this is the truth. I mean, he's, he's, he's an honest guy. He said, not more than a week later, his boss came to him and said, you know, I've decided uh, I want to provide you a company car, vehicle. Do you, have, do you have any kind you'd like to have? And it's like, he said, well, yeah, I do, Tahoe. All right, now, second... <laughs> okay second second thing they said blessing comes with seeing God more clearly they said not only did they understand that God is faithful to provide they understood God has the power to provide and they said they understand how much it's God's grace to give them the privilege of being able to do this to be able to give and then they talked about the immense peace and, and joy and fulfillment that comes with obedience and then they talked about the impact that it's had on them in handling all of their finances they said it's a spiritual discipline that strengthened them to be disciplined in other areas of their finances you know what i had a conversation with a guy who's a financial planner and he's he has said they he you can you it, it, it's like the line is so clearly drawn between Christians who tithe and Christians who don't tithe. The difference. Huh? And how successful they are with their finances. And I love this. One of them said, the opportunity it's given to model for their children where their priorities are. And this is an exact quote from him. He said, Our kids get the truth that where the money goes, so goes the heart. I love this one. Another guy said, our finances are one of the primary areas that's most natural to want to control and not release to God. When I tithe, I demonstrate and validate what really is my true foundation in life. Tithing allows me, and he would say us, to truly assess our priorities. It's a tangible way to show God that God is first. And I love this. The topic of money uh, has never been an issue with us. Because we start with the fact that it's God's. Ah, That's right. He said, our first budget item has and will always be the tithe. And I love this one from this guy. To me, he said, "Um, Brother, there's one thing that the world has a hard time grasping. You can't outgive the one who created it all. Is that true? Absolutely. You can't possibly outgive God who made it all. God who made it all. And so you know what, everybody? Let's just have our arms wide open. You know, so we can receive God's blessing, and so we can be a blessing to others. You'll never, 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 never regret it. Okay. Let's stand for prayer, and then we're going to close with worship, okay? Father, I, I, I thank you for your word. It just blows me away. I, God, you know, I came into this, uh, this passage of Scripture not expecting what I ended up with, but so much fun, and I'm so grateful to you, and thankful to you, God, grateful to you for your wisdom and your kindheartedness to us that you want really what's best for us. And that's really it. I mean, that's how much you love us, God. And I thank you for that. And I I would just ask for every single one of us here today uh, that we'll take that step if we haven't taken it yet. And if we have taken it, God, I I love what Ken and Michelle talked about. And, And they're right. Man, it starts with the tithe, and then as you keep blessing us, we can just keep increasing it. And we should. And I thank you for that. In Christ's name, amen.